Well, probably only a small number of you would know that I spent some years living in Toowoomba. I studied there and I learnt many useful things. Diamond valuing was not among them. But I did get close to learning a thing or two. You see, one day I was looking in the window of a second-hand shop and something caught my eye there. A gold ring with a huge diamond in it. The price tag said $11,000. Quite a gem. Maybe. But if so, why was it there in this particular shop window displayed next to second-hand guitars and rollerblades that people didn't want anymore? Full of curiosity, I crossed into the large jeweller's shop across the way and I asked the people there, how would you recognise a truly valuable diamond? The girl at the desk picked up her phone and within minutes I was talking to a very well-dressed valuer and investment advisor. Uh, He did a very fine job, I've got to say, at ignoring the fact that I was wearing student clothes and a pair of old joggers and he treated me as if I even had the money to be involved in such a conversation as that to his great credit. He told me that there were many types of diamonds and that there was a huge difference in the value of them. Industrial diamonds, you see, did all the work and they actually weren't worth a lot. While dress diamonds, well, they looked very impressive and they cost a lot of money. But there was a third category of stones, ones that looked like diamonds but actually weren't diamonds at all. Now, it'd be nice, I guess, to find any diamond, but we'd first have to be able to recognise whether it was the real deal, and then we'd also have to recognise the true value of the stone. You see, there's no, no good in picking up a dressed diamond if you need to tip a drill. And there's certainly no good trying to impress your fiancé with a drill tip. And it's no good trying either with just a piece of glass. Now when it comes to the saviour and king of the world, we just better get that right too. Is this Jesus the real deal? And what job is he ideal for? And again, Luke's gospel is very, very helpful to us at this point. You'll remember the situation. God had been silent among his people for some 400 years. But then a trickle of messages started flowing. An angel spoke to Zechariah about his son, John the Baptist. That same angel carried a message to Mary about the child that she was to bear and then to some shepherds as well. And then a whole mob of angels started singing and praising God when Jesus was born. And under the Holy Spirit, the influence of the Holy Spirit, Simeon and Anna spoke after Jesus' birth. You see, things had begun to move. God, if you like, had gotten back in touch with his people. But then we remember too that this introduction of Jesus was humble in the extreme, at least from a human perspective. There was no palaces, there was no human paparazzi. Indeed there are doubtful connections and relationships, there is poverty and inconvenience, not the things that you'd expect at the birth of the king of the world. So what do we have here before us? Are we looking at a diamond or are we looking at a piece of glass? Is this Jesus the real deal or just an imposter or a figurehead for a bunch of misled people? And if he's the real deal, then what job does he do and what are we to do in response to that? 
Well, in Luke chapter 3, John has the focus, John the Baptist. A significant amount of time has passed since Jesus' birth, and Luke is very specific about that time. He says it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, and Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Now, a little note of interest here. Uh, You'll often hear people say that the Bible is not a historical document, just fables and stories changed over time. But the fact is that we know a bit about Pilate, and we know that Luke got him right. The ancient authors Josephus and Tacitus spoke of Pilate. Uh, Some of the intellectuals of the time, uh, of recent times really, said that, well, you you can't trust what those writers say. We've got to dismiss them. They're not reliable. But then just a couple of years ago, an inscription was found at a place called Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima that verified Luke's accuracy. Just recently, we discovered that Luke was right all along. It's a bit embarrassing for the knockers, really, to say that someone didn't exist and then find an ancient document that says, yes, he did. And I think that that uh, gives us a little bit of a warning too. You see, if Luke is accurate even in the details of incidental characters, then we really have to start listening to him about the bigger issues that he's speaking about. That's right, isn't it? Isn't that just logical? If you get the little things right, then it's pretty likely that you're going to get the big things right. Well, let's have a look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 2. Again, there's a lot of historical detail given here. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now it's about 30 years after Jesus' birth, and the message is, are you ready yet? The other day it was, are you getting ready? Well now it's, are you ready yet? John's job was to get the people ready for God and the salvation that he was to bring. Have a look with me now at verse 15. His work is not without effect. In in fact, the question was raised, is he himself the promised one? So as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. See, John was saying, I'm not the one. Don't make a mistake about me. I'm not the one. But he is here. The one bringing both salvation and judgment is here. And now in verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptised and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. 
with you I am well pleased. So what's going on here? Why all the fuss? Again, it makes sense. We've had the messengers, human and angelic. We've had the confusing humility and now as Jesus begins his public ministry, we've got something else. What we have here is the revealing of God the Son himself. Again, as we read it, it's so very easy to miss just what a big deal all of this is. This time, instead of messengers and Old Testament prophets, it's God himself who speaks from heaven. 400 years of silence, of any sort of discussion or conversation from God, and then all of a sudden, his personal voice can be heard among the people. Now one of the reasons we can miss the significance of such an event is because we actually don't know our Bibles well or know how to read them properly. What is being said here is of huge significance. It's not just a a proud dad shouting from the sidelines about a kid who scores a try or something like that. Verse 22 again. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. This is God the Father acknowledging his Son. It's like he's pointing a finger at Jesus and saying, Well, world, here he is, the one that I promised you all that time ago. He's finally here. And did you realise that what God says here is actually quotes? God is quoting from the Old Testament. It's Old Testament scripture that's on view here, even as God speaks personally. And whenever something from the Old Testament is quoted in the New, it's always worth going back there and having a look at what's going on. There are actually two passages being quoted here by God himself. One is Psalm 2, perhaps one of the most significant psalms of the whole Bible. Psalm 2 is all about God's faithfulness and his promised king. A couple of verses just to give you the feel. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage. You will rule them with an iron scepter. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss his feet or kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. And in Luke chapter 3, you are my son. Now, we go through lives being ourselves, don't we? Minding our own business. We choose this and we choose that. Sometimes we listen to God, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we obey God and sometimes we don't. We occasionally pray. We sometimes or every so often read our Bibles. But mostly, we are the ones who are in control. 
the ones in the driving seat. We are the ones who rule our lives. Mostly, we are the kings of our own earth. Jesus can remain at arm's length a little bit for us, can't he? But did you hear what God said to the kings of the earth? Be warned, you kings of the earth. Be warned. With Jesus, we like the idea that he died for us. We like the idea that he loves us. And those things are right and true. But who is he in the end? God himself tells us. Despite all the appearances to human eyes, God speaks and he gives us a glimpse of the reality. This Jesus is God's son. He is the king that God has placed over each one of us. Over all governments, over life and death. Right now, interested in our country town, our world, our church, and each one of you as individuals. Jesus is the king over all our decisions, the ones that we make minute by minute and day by day, and it is to him that every single one of us will have to speak about those decisions. We're not the king. And if we seize control of that which belongs to him, we will have to give account to him of why we did that. Now don't mishear me at this point. This stuff is not written just to scare us into action. It's not just rhetoric. This Jesus is God's anointed king over all things. And that's what God says personally to the world. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. Now, whatever else happens today, Take at least a few minutes to think through what God has to say here. Take a moment and think about the size of what God has revealed and what it means to each one of us. If we understand it, if we do stop and think, if we understand it, then what we do will change we'll step just a little bit more into line with what the God of the universe wants from us and in our lives and actions. Or we have to ask this question. Have we not understood? Have we not grasped the significance of what God personally said? As a sideline, do you see how the Old Testament quote is being used here? Almost inevitably, In the Bible, a quote is just a flag rather than the complete idea. Any good Jew knew his scriptures, and when one was quoted, it was to bring into mind the whole section. 
We need to keep that in mind when we see a scriptural quote in the New Testament. You're supposed to go and have a look at the whole slab. The quote is just a flag. You are my son. Go look at all of Psalm 2. In the New Testament, that psalm is quoted five times. And about Jesus every time. If Jesus was a diamond, then he would be of the most impressive and expensive kind, wouldn't he? But you remember that I said that this was just the first passage of two that God quotes. The second is just as important. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit being put on Jesus has us looking at the Old Testament scriptures, and again, God's word gives us a flag. God says a little more literally, You are my Son, the Beloved, in you I take delight. In Isaiah 42 verse 1 it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This flag quote points to a remarkable section of the scriptures. In this part of Isaiah, there is a focus on a future servant that God will raise up, one who will bring justice and righteousness, one who God will make a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to uh, to release from the dungeon all those who sit in darkness. So here is Jesus, king and servant. And as Isaiah goes on in his description of the servant, we hear this. Isaiah 53, the second half of verse 2 and following. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Here's the humility that we spoke about before. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. As one who comes, uh, as one who from others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely... He has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we considered him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. This diamond has another facet, doesn't it? This diamond is not all about looks and being impressive like an industrial diamond this diamond also has a hard and dirty job to do his job is to save us from ourselves his job was to take upon himself our sin and to be punished for them every mean and hurtful thought every harsh or self-promoting word every selfish and thoughtless action, every disobedience and rebellion against him. Jesus took all these from the people who put their trust in him and he piled them on himself so that he would be punished in our place. This is Jesus, both King and Saviour. No lookalike fake, No piece of cut glass. 
This is Jesus, the glorious, precious diamond worthy of awe and reverence and obedience. And more. This is Jesus, the hard drill tip that was needed to break our hard hearts and to free us from our spiritual blindness and the dungeons that we sat in of sin and death. This is Jesus. No other was glorious enough nor tough enough to be sufficient for the job. His death on the cross is the hard edge of his obedience. And we really need to start pulling all of this together, don't we? We really need to start thinking it through. And if you haven't, well, there's no time like the present. God's reliable word tells us to consider the value of Christ the King and Saviour and to act in the light of what is revealed about him. Let me finish by reading a few verses from Luke chapter 3 just to get our mind back into that book. Beginning at verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptise you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy. Do you hear the weight of his words? I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then from verse 21. Now when all the people were baptised and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heaven was opened. Actually, the heaven was torn open. That's how that literally goes. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. In history, God the Son, the King and the Saviour, has been revealed to the world that he created. And with him comes both salvation and judgment. And we need to respond to the truth of these matters. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your clear speech. We ask that you would forgive us for the fact that perhaps we haven't noticed such things before and that perhaps we haven't responded as we should before. In your mercy and grace, Heavenly Father, allow us to respond to your Son properly and we pray it in his precious name. Amen.